This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. But before we get things underway tonight, I just want to thank a few folks who have been sending me suggestions for shows and a few comments on Theater of the Mind. Uh, a special shout-out to Tim Keller, who hails from Butler, Ohio. That's a village in Richland County. Um, told that at the 2010 census, 933 souls lived there. Well, uh, and of course, Tim being one of them. Now, uh, Tim tells me his favorite three shows are Red Skelton, Dragnet, and The Whistler. But he gives me a failing grade to Bob and Ray. Hmm. I might have to rethink my endorsement of that show since Tim's dissenting voice is not the only one I heard from. But just a heads up, Tim, coming very shortly is an episode of The Whistler that's never been heard before on Theater of the Mind. And I'd love to hear from anyone else, whether it's a brick or a bouquet. Just send me an email address to f.proctor at mzmedia.com. Calm. Okay? Alrighty, to tonight's show. First, we go back to June 1st of 1951 for an episode of Nightbeat, starring Frank Lovejoy. Frank Lovejoy in Nightbeat. Randy Stone. I cover the night beat for the Chicago Star. And it's just that night beat. Plodding, pounding pavements, looking, always looking for that story that beats with the pulse of the city at night. There's a bite in the air. A penetrating drizzle goes through your bones. Tired, pallid faces look out at nothing through the streetcar windows. I turn up my collar and try to remind myself it's spring, but there's nothing warming in the thought. The city's got her makeup off and her hair down. Downbeat. I wander through the loop, walk through the deserted cavern of concrete that by day is LaSalle Street. It's tall gray buildings walling me in like giant tombstones. Just for a minute, I feel like a kid in a graveyard, and like a kid. I reach for the light spilling out through the big plate glass window. There they were, the ones who inhabit the caves by night. The night army of cleanup women, busy like so many beavers with their mops and waxes, polishing the brass, the elevator doors, the mailboxes, the stairs. I watch the one nearest to me, dipping the brush, sloshing the suds, and wiping them up. She was old, white-haired, and small, not much bigger than a child. She seemed tired. She stopped, and she looked up and saw me. She smiled. I winked at her. She took a deep breath like a sigh, and she turned back to her pail. But she never made it. 
Let me in. Hey, you in there. Let me in. The other little beaver saw us, crawled across the pail, and rushed to her, blocking my vision. Then one woman stood up, terror on her face. It wasn't much of a story, just an item for the obits. This is Martha Orloff, age 62, scrub woman, death by natural causes, heart failure. Natural? What's natural about killing yourself with a scrub brush? The police came and took the body away, and the little beavers went back to work, and in half an hour, you wouldn't have known it had happened. Yeah, you stand in the presence of death, and you come up with a two-line obit. That's all it would have been if the other scrub woman hadn't stopped me on my way out of the building. Oh, mister, please. Yeah? Please excuse, but somebody should tell him. Who? Mrs. Orlov's boy. Oh, the police will take care of that. I don't think the right boy should learn his mother is dead to police. I would go myself, but they're very strict here. I would lose job. Okay. Okay. Uh, what's his name? I don't know. She just called him my boy. All right. I'll find him. Mister, please. No, what's the matter? I don't know what to do with her stuff. What stuff? In her bag, in, in the locker. Oh. Okay. Let me see. Mrs. Orloff shared a locker with three other women. The police had taken her purse, but her cardboard treasure chest and her coat they left behind. I opened the box. In it was a crushed corsage she'd picked up off some littered corridor. And a picture postcard that had caught her fancy, the Eiffel Tower in the sunlight. And a pair of latex knee pads. They'd been issued to her, but she never used them. Even DuPont can't change the habits of a lifetime of drudgery. I left the cardboard box in the locker, but I took a coat. It was a shabby coat, but it was clean. In one pocket was a sack containing a sandwich, two slices of black bread with a little mayonnaise in between. In the other pocket, a pair of white gloves mended in the fingers and a door key pinned to the lining of the pocket with a safety pin. The funny thing. Four million people in the town, they work to death, play to death, drink to death, and you rub shoulders with them every day. But you only meet a handful. I don't know why I felt drawn to Martha Orloff. Maybe it was because I was the last person she smiled at. I went over to her flat. She lived in Polish town in a little walk-up tenement, the second floor back. It was very late. In deference to the fire laws, a 20-watt bulb burned uncertainly in the hall. A heavy smell of cabbage and cooking grease lingered in the air. I knocked again and louder. If anybody was inside, they should have heard me. I didn't want to wake up the whole building, so I unpinned the key from her pocket. I opened the door, and I flicked on the light. It was Mother Hubbard's cupboard. It was bleak to the bone. Two rooms with a kitchenette curtained off with faded on. A little canned milk, a little black bread, one boiled potato, no rug on the floor... One cot with a lumpy mattress, one poor withered geranium trying to live without light. But no sign of any sun, nothing in the place belonging to man or boy. But in the sideboard drawer there was something interesting. A package of money order receipts crisscrossed with rubber bands. Hundreds of them, all for the same amount, two dollars, and issued about a week apart, and all made out to the polio fund. 
And with the receipts, a personal letter from one of Chicago's richest women thanking Martha Orloff for her charity. Huh. On old lady scrubs floors, and every two weeks, every week, two bucks go to the polio fund. Why? Well, the answer was right in front of me. All I had to do was look up. On the wall, a picture of a sickly, spindly boy about 12 years old with braces on both legs. Look, you no good bum. I told you, don't come... Oh. oh, I thought you are Stanley. What you doing here? Who are you? Never mind who I am. I'm janitor. What, what you doing in Mrs. Orlov's flat? I'm looking for a son. Stanley? Well, if that's his name. That's who I'm looking for. Oh. You from the police? I'm a newspaper man, Randy Stone. I came to tell him that his his mother died tonight. She died? Yes. This his picture? Yeah, that's Stanley. Died. I'm not surprised. She worked to death all time. Scrub, scrub, what for? I tell her a million times, what for you work, Martha? Let that big hunk son take care of you. But no, he big lazy bum. Too good for work. Wait, He's wait a Wait a minute. Are we talking about the same kid? Oh, that that picture take ten, twelve years ago. The old cure now. He walked good like me, twice as strong as me. Well, that's fine. I'm glad to hear it. Well, would you notify him that his mother is dead? Me? I don't tell that no good nothing. All right. Okay, okay. I'll... Where do I find him? I don't know nothing about Stanley Orloff. I don't want to know nothing. It's just as good. Maybe she did. Just as good. All right, mister. You go now. Without another word, he walked me down the stairs, ushered me out, and closed the front door, leaving me out there with a cold and some puzzled reactions. I stood in the recess of the doorway and tried to make up my mind. Should I forget about Stanley Orloff or not? The police would reach him somehow or other, they'd tell him. But then I'd never fill in the sketchy picture I had of a kid in braces, a scrub woman buying a money order every week for the polio fund. Yes, an old lady dies in front of you and she's no longer a stranger. You've got an obligation, so you find her son and you tell him. But where do you look? Yes, the letter in the sideboard drawer for Mrs. Genevieve Hall. The polio fund should know where Stanley Orloff was. I went back up. This time I was quieter. I opened the sideboard drawer, got the letter. Only, when I went to shut it, it stuck. I tried to force it. The kid's picture fell to the floor. I stooped to pick it up just as the door opened. What are you doing with Stanley's picture? What's that? A girl stood in the doorway. She was tall, high cheekbones, and a broad forehead. Anybody else wearing a beacon bathrobe would have looked lumpy and misshapen, but not her. This is a very active place tonight. You're the man from the newspaper, aren't you? Yeah, Randy Stone. I have to talk to you, but be quiet. Papa'd be mad. He can come in bed. What'd he tell you about Stanley? he tell you Stanley was no good? Uh, that's a pretty good summation. Everybody says he's a bum. Well, if he is, it's her fault. Her? His mother. I'm glad she's dead. Always waiting and babying him. Picking him up when he fell down. Why, she could walk a long time before she knew he could. And then when she found it out, you know what she told him? Stand on your own feet now, she said, and be a man. As if Stan Orloff wasn't more man than anybody on this block. Haven't you got your little drama, Miss Cass? 
Seems to me the heavy in the piece is a bug by the name of poliomyelitis. I don't know what that means. Probably smart talk, meaning you don't like Stanley like the rest of them. Oh, but you do. You bet I do. Stan could have been anything in the world. He's that smart. Just because he don't take any old job that's handed him, they say he's a bum. Because he wants to be something. To get out of this hole and live like a human being, they say he's no good. Oh, but it's all right for his mother to break her back to support him, huh? I don't like you. Well, miss, you're just going to have to get in line. I thought you were here to help Stanley or wouldn't I come up to talk to you? Look, I don't know Stanley Orloff. I don't know his mother unless watching somebody die constitutes an introduction. I came to give him a message, that's all. Now, if you'll tell me where to find him, I'd appreciate it. I'm sorry. I guess I didn't mean that about his mother. I guess I'm mad. And I guess because I miss him. Uh, where does he live? I don't know. He'll never tell me. Moved out of here two months ago. But he ran around with a fellow for a while. I didn't like him. We had a fight about it. The fellow runs the Ace High Club, but it's not a club. It's a pool hall. Maybe you could find Stan there. What's the fellow's name? Brannigan. Ace Brannigan. Thank you. Oh, if you do find him... You want me to tell him that a certain tall, black-eyed girl is still around, is that it? <laughs> I guess I was wrong. I guess I do like you. Olga! Olga, you upstairs! Oh, Papa! You come right down there! She ran out of the flat like a frightened rabbit. I started to leave before I got thrown out. When I noticed that Mrs. Orloff's coat had fallen to the floor from the chair where I'd put it, it didn't seem right in a flat as frugally neat not to hang it up. I opened the closet door. And I suddenly felt guilty. Guilty for having eaten a square meal and guilty for having a pair of $12 shoes. In the closet was one dress and one pair of shoes half-soled, an all-black straw hat with a pink flower on it, a pair of slippers with one toe out, and a bathrobe, and a clean flannel nightgown that had been mended so much it looked quilted. The wardrobe of Martha Orloff I closed the door. I picked the kid's picture up and I started to hang it back on the wall. And then I saw it. A bank book pasted to the back of the picture with a scotch tape. A bank book belonging to Martha Orloff. With a balance of $50,006. NBC is bringing you Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. There's more mystery later this evening with two rough and tough crime fighters. That's the amazing Mr. Malone, a daring private detective, equally proficient at romance or solving murders. Followed by The Man Called X, starring John Lund, who travels to all the dark and mysterious corners of the world, combating the evils of international intrigue, as an intrepid soldier of fortune. Yes, there's action and adventure every Friday here on NBC. And now back to Nightbeat and Randy Stone. Martha Orloff, Martha. Yes, my little obit that had been growing so nicely into a human interest yarn had fallen flat into a cliche. How do you figure it? 
A scrub woman in Polish town with a bank balance of fifty thousand and six dollars. But there were some angles that didn't fit. Like that glorifying letter from Mrs. Genevieve Hall praising her generosity and those fiddling little weekly donations to the polio fund. I thought how ironic it was that I was sitting in a mansion on Lakeshore Drive waiting to discuss Martha Orlov. If Chicago had an aristocracy, Mrs. Hall would have been at least a duchess. She was strictly first family. Her father built an industrial empire on the Lake Shore when Mrs. O'Leary's cow was still a calf. Stone, I try to be friendly with the press, but was it necessary to waken me in the middle of the night? Ah, I thought so. Well, young man, get on with it. I'm no girl, you know, to be lollygagging in the parlor all night. What is it you want? Mrs. Martha Orloff died tonight. Orloff? Oh. So? Uh, you wrote her this letter. She was one of your regular contributors, sent two dollars every week. Oh, of course. That dear little Polish woman. You say she died? Yes, of heart failure. Tell me, what did you know about her? What do you mean, Mr. Stone? She was a generous, hard-working woman. And her son? He was stricken with infantile paralysis about ten years ago. He had a slow recovery, and the fund took care of him, like so many others. And those uh, two-dollar donations? Well, that should be clear, even to a journalist. She wanted to pay us back naturally for what we'd done for him. She dedicated her life to it. We didn't want to take her money, but we couldn't refuse. I happen to know she went hungry many times, but she never failed to send the two dollars. Or did she? I, I mean, did she go hungry? Well, of course she did. You're sure? What are you trying to do? Take a simple act of charity and twist it into Oh, a... no, no, please. Well, I, Mrs. Hall, I'm only trying to understand why Mrs. Orloff left the bank account of $50,000. Oh, it's ridiculous. Well, see for yourself. Here's the bank. Young man, I've been around a few years, and I know human nature. You can show me 20 bank books, and I still won't believe it. If she had any money, she would have given it to us. By last year, when the polio fund fell short of its quota, she took it as a personal disaster. And you know what she did about it? Instead of resting her tired old heart on her days off, she baked pies and sold them in her neighborhood. She made $25 that way, and she gave every cent of it to the fund. Now, have you any more questions? Ah, uh, yes, uh, Mrs. Hall. Uh... Do you take contributions from the working press? The night was almost gone, but I couldn't quit. I had to have the full portrait of Martha Orloff. And my story, my $50,000 story, and the elusive threads that would tie it up into a column of linotype. I went into a little all-night beanery and had a bite to eat. While I was waiting for the coffee, I dug out the bank book again. $50,006. A lot of deposits. How did she do it? Now, wait a minute. There were a lot of deposits, all right, but it didn't add up. The book was practically full. There were pages of deposits, and there were just about as many withdrawals. At one time, her account got up to $50, and then she drew it down to six. She left it that way for a long time, 11 months. And then these three big deposits within the last month, 25,000, 10,000, 15. Maybe Stanley Orloff had the answer to that one. The Ace High Club was sandwiched between a Polish theater and a second-hand store off Division Street, and militarily speaking, off-limits. Business wasn't very brisk. One lone pool player was shooting a lethargic game. 
On the other table, a bull-necked individual was rolling dice. And against the wall, in a tilted chair, a mildewed club member was dozing under his hat. And over them all, a green glow hung like mold. One dice player looked up. What's on your mind, John? I'm looking for dice. Yeah? Yeah. Lots of people looking for dice. What's your point? Four. Cop? I know paper man. I'm looking for Stanley Orloff. Never heard of him. I was told I could find him here. No dice. I'm going to get that cushion fixed. Yeah, yeah, do that. He looked at me in a cold, dead way. He was lying. That was obvious. It was also obvious that the interview was over. A drowsy individual was sitting up now, very alert. The pool player had transferred his interest from the game to me. And since I prefer to make an exit under my own steam, I walked out. But it didn't matter. Because now I had an angle on the bank book. The money was hot. Stan Orloff was hot and he was hiding out. And Mrs. Orloff had stashed the dough for him, protecting him even to that. All I needed to wrap up the story was a record of three stick-ups corresponding in amount and date to the three deposits. I grabbed a cab for the police station. It was a dull night in robbery detail. Sergeant Doyle was happy to break the monotony by dragging out his records. Olson, Upstein, Watson. Now, Randy, no all up. Uh, well, how about suspicion of robbery? You ever bring him in for questioning? No. I don't get it. There's got to be an oil up. What do you want? Facts or fiction? Let me see those unsolved robberies. Well, look, Randy, if you're using this information to criticize the police force... Oh, Doyle, relax. Mm -hmm. Did I ever say anything against the boys in blue? Okay, then, now. The month of May. Here. Here's a height. Mink coat and jewelry. What was the value? Now. This stuff was recovered, huh? Uh, here's one. Chain store for 600 bucks. Not enough. Here's a gas station knocked over for 150 in the till. Never got a line. No, out. no, 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 no. Three stick-ups, big one. Want a big one? All right, here's a big one. 50 grand. Now, that's too big. Now, what about 25, 15, 10? What do you want me to do, make chains? What's wrong with 50 grand in one piece? What are you working on, anyway? Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it isn't three. Maybe it is one. Where was it? What? The big stick-up. <laughs> oh, that, uh, that was a candy store. Candy, candy store? Fifty grand? That's right. And I don't mind telling you, that's one robbery I'd feel very happy if we never saw. Never saw? Well, that's a twist. How come? Candy store. A guy by the name of Burke runs it, but it's a front. He's a bookie. We know he's a bookie, but we can't get anything on him. So a guy comes along and sticks him up for 50 grand and Burke comes yelling to the cops. <laughs> Said it was his life saving. Was there a suspect? Yeah, but we couldn't hold him. Insufficient evidence. Because you couldn't find the dough. Yeah, that's right. And his name was Stanley Orloff. Well, you're a stubborn guy, Randy. There's no Orloff on the record. Right? Oh. Well, all right, that's all. All right, thank you, sir. Uh, hey, what was it here? Who? The suspect on the candy store heist. Oh, uh, let me see. Mm -hmm. Brannigan. Uh, that was his name. Ace Brannigan. Well, thank you. The meeting of the Ace High Club was still in session. The three members were just as I left. Now, good evening, Mr. Brannigan. Well, so now you know my name. 
That's real polite. I'll be brief. Are you sure you don't know where Stanley Orloff is? You're making me out a liar. Look, I told you before, I don't know him. Well, all right. If you should get acquainted with him, will you give him a message for me? Yeah? Like what? Would you tell him that his mother died tonight? I went back to Mrs. Orloff's flat. I let myself in quietly and waited in the dark. All the threads were there now. If my hunch was right, all I had to do was wait and the story would tie itself up. Pretty soon I heard what I was waiting for. Footsteps. One dragging a little, like a limp. I couldn't see them. I was in the kitchen, but I heard them. And the man with the limp walked across the room to the sideboard. Ace. Ace, it's gone. What do you mean, it's gone? The bank book. I have it right here, stuck on the back of the picture. What are you trying, Orloff? A fast one? What? Why should I do a thing like that? I don't know. Maybe you think the use of your old lady's bank account is worth more than 10% of 50 grand. Or maybe because you're going to inherit all that dough, you got ideas that belongs to you. Oh, I wouldn't do a thing like that, Anastasia. Yeah. Then it's your old lady. She got wise to the whole setup. But how could she? She didn't know the account was still open. I told her I took her last six bucks months ago. Well, that book's got to be around here someplace. And find it. Is this what you boys are looking for? Huh? Oh, it's you again. Still looking for a guy? I found him. Give me that bank book. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Stanley now. An interesting angle. An old lady dies and her son inherits the proceeds of a stick-up. Yeah, yeah, and it's all legal. Now, give me that book. I think I'll keep it. Police might find it interesting. They might jump to the same conclusions I have. That dough's mine and I'm going to have it. Well, sure it's yours, but you're going to have a tough time getting it. You'll have to go to the cops and tell them how you got it and how come it's in somebody else's bank account. Are you going to hand it over or do I take it the hard way? I didn't have any rebuttal for the gun he turned on me. I handed him the book as the door opened. Oh, I hear you come back. It was the janitor. He didn't see Ace and the kid. They stepped back into the shadows. He held a piece of paper out. Olga, say you friends for Mrs. Orloff. Maybe you take care of this paper, huh? Sure, sure, I'll take it. What is it? I, uh, I keep it for her because I'm on ground floor. She's always afraid there'll be fire. It gets burned and... It's down. So what you do here? You're not satisfied you kill your mother? All right, Grandpa, you said your piece blow. Who you are? Oh, this is terrific. What's so funny? Here, read it, Ace. The last will and testament of Martha Orloff. Huh? She leaves all her worldly goods, everything, to her favorite charity, the Polio Fund. And that means along with her other dress and her pair of shoes, the banquet. What does it mean? It means, Stanley, boy, that you can't touch this, though. Either one of you. But it's... It... Yes, it's legal. You bet it's legal. As legal as an English barrister. Ace's face went white. He wasn't very bright, but he was bright enough to know that I had him by the tail feathers. What are we going to do, Ace? Do? Who's going to know about the will? But they know, and, and... Oh, no. No, Ace, I don't want any part of that. I don't Shut want up. To... Sneaker, you open it and watch your step. Ace moved against the wall, his gun concealed, but he had a perfect beat on me. I opened the door, and there was the prettiest sight I've ever seen. Two big, ugly cops, and one of them was Sergeant Doyle. Randy! You finally got me into the act. 
Which one of these guys is all up? Oh, that's him. Over there. Thanks. Stanley all up? Yeah. I'm sorry, but we got bad news for you. Your mother died tonight. The body's at the county morgue. Well, it's 5 a.m. It's no time. I should go home, but I haven't finished my column. There's one item left to write. What makes it tough, I've got a choice. One way I write it might make the front page. Bucky, hoodlum, swindle. The other way, it only amounts to an obit. Oh, but what an obit. I was tempted to tell the cops about the 50 grand, but... Well, they'd only give it back to the bookie and then nobody wins. Yeah, it's dough thrown down a muddy track. <laughs> the suckers don't know it. But all their little two bucks on the nose and two bucks to play some show is really gonna buy something. Yeah, I got a full portrait of Martha Orloff now, framed in gold. $50,000. Martha Orloff, patron of Polio Foundation, leaves fortune. Copy, boy. Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy, is produced and directed by Warren Lewis. Tonight's story was written by John and Gwen Bagney with music by Robert Armbruster. Featured in tonight's cast were Virginia Gregg, Myra Marsh, Paul Dubov, Ed Max, and Lou Merrill. Frank Lovejoy can currently be seen co-starring with Joan Crawford and Robert Young in Warner Brothers' Goodbye, My Fancy. Stay tuned for Fibber McGee and Molly next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Fibber McGee and Molly. Starring that married couple, Jim and Marion Jordan. Were they popular? Well, listen to this. The primetime situation comedy ran as a standalone series from 1935 to 1956 and then continued as a short-form series as part of the weekend monitor from 1957 to 1959. Now, that's a hell of a run. Tonight's episode is entitled The Porch Swing." The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. The makers of Johnson's Wax for home and industry present Fibber McGee and Molly, written by Don Quinn, with music by the Kingsman and Billy Mills Orchestra. Did you ever watch an amateur carpenter trying to put a new blade in a hacksaw? And just as he got it properly tightened up, it went... (laughs) Well, here he is trying it again with another blade as we meet Fibber McGee and Molly. 
iron bunch of hacksaw blades. I could get better iron than this out of a can of spinach. <laughs> now, let me see. One more twist. <laughs> dead rat, the dead ratted thing, anyway. They must make these things out of peanut brittle. Well, what are you cra- doing, McGee? I'm getting ready to put up the porch swing. What are you doing with the meat saw? This, my dear uninformed woman, is not the meat saw. This is a hacksaw. Oh. Well, if you have a friend in jail or something, I'll be glad to bake a cake around it and you can... Uh... What are you doing with it? <laughs> I'm putting a new blade into it. Blades keep busting. I've been tightening them very gently like this, and every time I... <laughs> See what I mean? That makes four of them I've broken. Well, why don't you leave them looser? Won't cut anything if they're loose. I'll show you what I mean. Hand me another blade. All right. Here you are. Thanks. Now, let me see. One gentle twist. Ah. Two gentle twists. (laughs) Three gentle twists. Ah. Ah, there. I guess I was just a little... Now, 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 McGee, don't say it. Ah, the dead... Why do you need the hacksaw anyway? I'm putting up the porch swing. Why do you need a hacksaw? Because a hacksaw is... I need it. It's for the... It's... My gosh, I guess I don't need it. <laughs> Fine. Boy, is that a relief. I might have spent the whole day putting in new hacksaw blades. Sure. Now I can go to work. Hey, are my eyes going bad or is that Sig Wellington coming up the walk? That's Mr. Wellington, all right. Wearing a Panama hat that must have been woven underwater and taken out wet because... Ah, hello there, Mr. Wellington. Ah, <laughs> oh, there, Mrs. McGee. How you do brighten my day. And McGee... Tarnished again. (laughs) Hello, Sigmund. Sit down on the top step and let's talk about inconsequential things. How have you been? That's the first pair of spats I've seen for a long time, Mr. Wellington. Is this a formal call? Oh, no. I was going to stop in at the bank on my way back about a small loan, and I was afraid I'd get cold feet. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful Panama hat, too, Sig. Weave it yourself? No, it's it's merely one of a large collection of hats I own. Mm-hmm. One of the advantages of being a theater owner is the lost and found department, you know. <laughs> you must let me show it to you sometime. All but the purses, which I keep locked up. Oh, too valuable, I imagine. No, no, I just don't like to see those bags under my eyes all the time. <laughs> I suppose you hide the umbrellas, too, because they remind you of the overhead. Uh, Very amusing But what may I ask Are you constructing with this vast array Of mechanical impedimenta, my friend He's putting up the porch swing, Mr. Wellington You can stick around and give me a hand if you want to, Sig No, thank you, my friend The last time you did some repair work I gave you a hand In fact, I gave you my all In fact, that is my all right there I've been looking all over for it Hey, hey, wait, what are you... Oh, well, take it then Engine giver Ah, how splendid to have it back again. It isn't a pleasant thing at my age to feel that one has lost his punch. Well, (laughs) good day, old chap, and Mrs. McGee, au revoir until next week. Yes, but the thought of seeing you again gives me strength. My, my, isn't he charming, McGee? Yeah. More personality than an onion sandwich. (laughs) I'd like to buy him for what I think of him and sell him for what he thinks of himself. (laughs) Did you see him go away with half my tools? Now, don't exaggerate, McGee. He only took that little all and he had a perfect right to it. He loaned it to you a year ago. That's beside the point. He knows I got to put up this porch swing and deliberately ran off with a very useful tool. What would you need an all for? I need an all for the... In case I have to... It'll make it the... 
I always... You could... It might... Well, I guess I don't need it at that. Of course not. Well, I've got to go see about dinner, dearie, and if you need help, you just call for me. Okay. Ah, there goes a good kid. She knows when it comes to carpentering, I don't know my neck from a folding ruler. <laughs> but does she ever criticize? Yes. <laughs> but does she mean it? Certainly she means it. That's why she does it. She's a... Hi, mister. Huh? Oh. Oh, hi, Feeny. Hi. Hey, what you doing, mister? What you doing? Well, I'm... Hmm, what you... Hmm. I'm putting up the porch swing. Putting up a what, mister? Porch swing. Don't you know what a porch swing is? Sure I do, I betcha. We got one at our house. Oh, you got a porch swing? Hmm? Hey? What'd you say, mister? I said you got a porch swing. Gee, how'd you know? Who told you? <laughs> I was walking by one night and it squealed. Oh. 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 Hmm? <laughs> Look, sis, I'm a very busy man Very busy I gotta put the porch swing up Oh? You got everything you need, mister? Yes, hmm? I have Now, if you'll just get out of my way And I'll sure. stand Are you sure you got everything? Certainly I'm sure Let me see Hammer Screwdriver Hacksaw Brace and bit Yes, I have Oh? <laughs> I'll bet you haven't, I bet you Well, I'll bet you any amount of money You want to bet up to ten cents That I got everything here I need to put up the swing Let me see the dough, mister Okay There you are Thin dime. Now, what do I need to put up the porch swing that I haven't got? The porch swing. The por- <laughs> Oh, my gosh, I forgot to bring out the porch swing. Billy Mills in the orchestra and Bessame Mucho. This swing did need some fixing, didn't it? Yeah, but it'll be okay. I put new slats in all across the back, tightened up the arm. Well, and... it looks pretty good. Mm-hmm. Where'd you get such uh, nice slats for the back, dearie? Out of the front fence. The front fence? Mm-hmm. McGee, you mean those are pickets? No, don't worry. I took them out so they don't show. 
I took out every other picket, see, and the fence looks like it's supposed to be that way. <laughs> you walk past it fast and you don't notice a thing. Hello, Mrs. McGee. Hi, Mr. McGee. Hello, Alice, dear. Hi, Al. Sit down and watch me put up the porch swing. Oh, thanks. We had a porch swing at home and the boys liked it so well that I didn't get to see a movie for three summers. <laughs> <laughs> and my father finally had to remodel the house and tear out the front porch so I'd get a chance to go out at night. <laughs> well, it's a great place to get a boy to propose, Alice. Yeah. In fact, that's how I snagged uh, Mr. McGee in our porch swing, wasn't it, dearie? Yeah, that wasn't the only time I got snagged in that swing either. <laughs> Talk about nails. <laughs> right now, I got 32 more pores than the average human body. <laughs> hey, Alice, there's a note on the table for you from a guy named Ricky. Oh, him. Hmm. Uh, isn't he the boy you were out with last night, dear, uh, the Marine? I think he's a Marine merchant. No, no, no. <laughs> you mean merchant marine, don't you, Alice? No, marine merchant. Creepers. What a salesman. <laughs> I get on with it. <laughs> well, I'm going up to bed now, Mrs. McGee. All right, dear. If anyone else calls, we'll take the message. Oh, thank you. So long now. Oh, uh, Mr. McGee. Yeah? I, um, I hate to ask this, but, uh, well, would you do me a favor? Why, sure, Alice. What's on your mind? Well, uh, if you don't mind, could I have those pliers back that I loaned you to fix the Christmas tree stand with? Pliers? Uh-huh. I don't believe I have any pliers with your name on them, Alice. I got some here that belong to some guy named Davis, but I don't know uh, who... Al Davis, that's the one. Oh. He's the fellow with the airplane plant that he and I used to go together, but we quit. And now he wants all his tools back. <laughs> Heavenly days. Of course you can have them, Alice. Here. McGee can always borrow them back in a pinch. Oh, gee, thanks, Mrs. McGee. I'll see you later. Thanks. Well, there we go again. No pliers. How do you suppose I can put up the porch swing with everybody snaking my tools away one at a time? My gosh, a fellow tries to do some work and... What'd you need the pliers for? To put up the porch swing, doggone it. But why the pliers? Because the pliers, I could use them. Well, the swing, if they... Hmm. <laughs> Say, I guess I didn't need the pliers at that. <laughs> oh, well, I can finish putting these slats in anyway. Oh, my, that porch swing has really seen service, hasn't it, dearie? Yeah, I'll say it has. Remember when Fred and Nittany come to visit us right after the war? Yes. And we'd sit in this swing all day long and remorse about our different adventures? You don't mean remorse, dear. You mean reminisce. I don't mean any such a thing. Reminisce is when you forget to do something. Like I was reminiscing paying the gas bill this month. <laughs> no, that's remiss. <laughs> Are you kidding who? <laughs> remiss is when you take two shots at something and don't hit it either time. <laughs> you miss and then you remit. <laughs> You're thinking of remit. No, no, Pat. Remit means to pay and you didn't. Well, then what does remorse mean? It means you're sorry for something. And I am, too. I'm sorry old Fred Nittany can't drop in again one of these days and remorse about our different adventures. <laughs> oh, hello, Mr. Wilcox. Hi, Molly. Hi, pal. Hi, Junior. Hunker down on the top step there and watch a real carpenter carping. What are you doing, friend? Well, he's putting up the porch swing, Mr. Wilcox, and he always gets into one of his masterful moods when he takes his hammer in hand. His hammer? Yes, my hammer. What's the matter? Your ears need glasses? I, uh, just wanted to point out the name burned into the handle of the hammer, Sonny Boy. Hmm? C-H-W-I-L-C-O-X. Why, so they are, McGee. Did you borrow that from Mr. Wilcox? <laughs> My gosh, I guess I did. 
Well, how do you know? <laughs> it's a small world, isn't it, Junior? <laughs> yeah, you can't even lose a hammer yet. <laughs> this is your hammer, isn't it? Well, you know me, pal. I hate to make positive statements, but... Yes, I know. Get him, with you? Hates to make a positive statement. <laughs> What's that stuff you toss around every week about Johnson's wax? Just vague hints? <laughs> well, that's different. Why, Mr. Wilson? Oh, Molly, please. <laughs> Asking him why at a time like this is like throwing a stick for a pup to chase. He's going to have his muddy paws in our lap now for the next five minutes. <laughs> well, what I mean is I don't mind making a positive statement about a product like Johnson's Wax when its ability to bring new life and beauty to floors and furniture and woodwork has been so well demonstrated. On the other hand, my first initial and last name on the hammer handle might just might be a coincidence. Circumstantial evidence. It isn't legally conclusive. You're the only H. Wilcox we know, Mr. Wilcox. I knew a Herman Wilcox once. He was a fellow... You see, some things are so well established they don't need any supporting evidence. This Herman Wilcox I knew had a hammer... Conversely, the fact that my name is on a hammer handle would not necessarily convince a jury of my property rights. Mm, Hickory hammer handle, too. Herman had. (laughs) Say, if I could only ask a lawyer about that, I could soon get that point settled. There's a lawyer lives the third house down, Junior. Old Joe Habeas. Gee, really? I'll run over and ask him. Here, let me take that hammer, pal. This is a fascinating legal technicality. Well, I've often wondered what would happen. Well, uh, well uh, now, how do you like that? Practically snatching a guy's hammer out from under his very eye. If that isn't What the do you cer- need the hammer for now? My gosh, the hammer's the... That's what I... was. The hooks, if, if the nails are when you... Hmm. Come to think of it, I guess I was through with the hammer. Thanks. <laughs> Haven't you any tools of your own, dear? Certainly I got tools of my own. Practically everything here is mine. That broken ice pick, <laughs> that plumb bob, that piece of copper wire. Who owns the steel tape and the brace and bit? Doc Gamble. But that piece of rope is mine, and that spool that had the tire tape on it, that's mine. So is Whose the... screwdriver is that? Doc Gamble's. <laughs> but who do you suppose owns that nail file? I do. And that handful of thumbtacks? I do. Whose hacksaw is that? Doc Gamble's. But he never had... my long ears, but did I hear my name mentioned? Oh, hello, Doctor. Come on up on the porch. You ever hear the old saying, Doc? Eavesdroppers never hear anything good about their selves? <laughs> Allowing for your lousy grammar, Smudgepot, yes, I have. <laughs> and I wasn't eavesdropping. Anybody who would eavesdrop on your conversation would be stupid enough to look in the back of a telephone book to see how it came out. <laughs> What's he think he's doing, Molly? He's putting up the porch swing, Doctor, and please don't make any derogatory remarks. He's very easily discouraged at manual labor. <laughs> well, I wasn't, I wasn't going to be unkind. I think it's wonderful. Get a little of that tallow away from his belt buckle. <laughs> Look who's talking about a tallow tummy. <laughs> you got a bay window that the Dion family could watch a parade from. <laughs> you look like you had been ringed five times in a horseshoe game and put your shirt on over it. <laughs> well, I'm the professional type, my boy. My occupation is sedentary. Well, why don't you hire a sedentary, you cheapskate? <laughs> Afraid she'd steal your nine cents worth of postage stamps? No, he didn't say secretary, dearie. He said sedentary, meaning that he sits down a lot. Exactly. What do you mean, exactly? He couldn't sit down anywhere exactly if his life was at stake. <laughs> 
Oh, he comes in on a wing and a chair. <laughs> That's not bad, McGee. <laughs> not bad. <laughs> not very good either, comes in. <laughs> Incidentally, Incidentally, McGee, where did you get this brace and bit? My best brace and bit. Why, he borrowed it from you, Dr. Gamble, didn't you, dearie? It's mine, all right, but he didn't borrow it from me, Molly. Where'd you get it, you little August snatcher? <laughs> well, for your information, you big sausage, I went over to your house one day, and you were out, and it looked like rain, and here was your best brace and bit out in the backyard. In the backyard? Don't give me that stuff, McGee. I keep my tools in the garage. Well, where's your garage, stupid? In the backyard, that's where. Now, uh, McGee... <laughs> And not only that, but the garage was unlocked, and if I hadn't have brought the brace and bit home with me, somebody might have walked in and stole it. Oh, yeah? Well, I never leave that garage unlocked, McGee, you little tool thief, and you know that, too. Well, it might as well be unlocked with that broken catch on the back window. <laughs> My gosh, anybody could pile boxes up there and get in. Just as easy as I did. Now, McGee... Well, if that's the kind of gratitude I'm going to get for saving your tools for you, you big... Hey, give me a hand with this swing, will you? Doc, full kid? Uh, sure, McGee. Ready to put up? Yeah. Come on in the house and let's get the chains for you. Yeah. I keep them put away so they don't get rusted. All right. Where are they? Right there in the hall closet, Doc. <laughs> Just open the door and... This door? Oh! Kingsman sings, She Broke My Heart in Three Places. She was like a blushing rose that trembled at my touch. We traded side for side. Later on I realized I loved her much too much. Now you'll see what finally transpired. In three places, Seattle, Chicago, and New York. She left me on those wild goose chases, but brother, I trailed her like a hawk. It started in the moonlight, we drifted on a lake. Down on my knees, I whispered, please, give my heart a break. So she broke my heart in three places, Seattle, Chicago, and New York. She broke my heart in four places, Toledo, Albuquerque, Minneapolis, and St. Paul. She broke my heart in five places, in Omaha, Nebraska, Terre Haute, Nome, Alaska, Chattanooga, and Montreal. It started in Savannah, we landed in Salt Lake. And there I cried my heart out, oh, give me just one break. So she broke my heart in ten places. Helena, Pasadena, Boise, Idaho, and Buffalo, Detroit, and Bowling Green. Pay attention while I mention racing. Wisconsin, near the courtesy of S.C. Johnson, Seattle, Chicago, and New
Now, there you are, Molly. Porch swing is up. And may I be the first to congratulate you, dearie? <laughs> you followed through like a rabbit hound in a hollow log. <laughs> Why, it even hangs level. Hangs level? Isn't it supposed to hang level? Well, after you're married, yes. Huh? <laughs> but you know, a smart single girl will always have a porch swing that helps people get together at one end of it. Hey, yours was always lopsided, come to think of it. The one on your porch in Peoria. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'll be. You tricked me. You tricked me. <laughs> you tricked me, too. How did I? I always used to think you were so neat, the way you could tie a bow tie so nicely. Huh? And then six months after we were married, one of them fell off, and I discovered they were tied at the factory. <laughs> I cried all night. No, I don't know why. You might have married a guy who wore factory-tied foreign hands. <laughs> hey, look how easy the swing swings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Needs a little oil. We got any? I think there's some in my sewing machine. I'll ask Beulah. Oh, Beulah? Beulah? Somebody out here yipping for Beulah? <laughs> we got any lubricating oil, Beulah? Says we got whisk. <laughs> <laughs> lubricating oil, Beulah. The kind you squirt of things that squeak. Isn't there a little can of it in my sewing machine? No, ma'am, there's a drop left in there. I used the last of it in the Valcom. In the what? The Valcom, the Valcom cleaner. Oh, you know, the copper sweeper with the sound effect. <laughs> well, remind me to get some tomorrow, McGee. We want it for this porch swing deal. It squeaks. Well, for goodness sake, ma'am, let us squeak. Ain't nothing more home-like than a squeaking post swing. <laughs> Saved my papa's life once. What did, Beulah? A squeaking post swing. Hmm. Yes, it did. My papa always smoked cigars and was always falling asleep. Ooh. One night he rocked himself in a post swing, a puffing and a rocking. <laughs> rocking and a puffing and a rocking and a squeaking. <laughs> squeaking and a puffing. And all of a sudden he fell sound asleep. Well, uh, what saved his life? Well, ma'am, the minute he fell asleep, the swing stopped rocking. And the squeak stopped the squeaking. Papa jumped up and holler, what's that? <laughs> On account he don't hear no more squeaking more. <laughs> he wake up just in time to stomp out a fire in his shirt front. <laughs> stomp out a fire in his shirt front? What was he, a contortionist? No. <laughs> he stamped it out with his bare hands. Oh, anyway, that's why I don't mind no squeaking, no post swing. Well, maybe we better leave this one, McGee. You're always doing the same thing, you know. Okay, forget the oil. Might have my own life saved by a narrow squeak. Have his own life saved by a squeak. <laughs> Love that man. Forget the squeak, dearie. Mm-hmm. I hadn't considered it in the light of a fire alarm. Come on, let's sit in the swing a while. Personally, I don't mind the squeak. It's cheerful. And the mosquitoes love it. Why? A squeak in the porch swing is like a moose call to a mosquito. It is? Yeah, he goes and rounds up all his friends and says, Come on, fellas, over to McGee's. There's somebody in the porch swing. <laughs> oh, isn't this peaceful, dearie? Just to sit here and relax. Mm-hmm. 
Isn't that a lonesome sound? Yeah. Nowadays, whenever I hear a train whistle, I think of all the boys that are over there. And McGee, did you remember to write a check for that extra war bond tomorrow? All rode out and on the hall table with my hat. Getting up the first thing in the morning. Wish I could get a bigger one, but I'm straining the budget as it is. Oh, bother the budget. We'd better come out short at the end of the month than at the end of the war. Yeah. Yes, that's right. <laughs> like old times, isn't it? Huh? Sure is. Oh, hey. I almost forgot. Reach under your end of the swing. What on earth is... Oh, for heaven's sake. <laughs> Let me take it. Here. Thanks. Oh, gee. <laughs> My old mandolin. <laughs> oh, the moon shines tonight. Swing up, McGee, and are in the mood for carpentry. You can put the screen doors on tomorrow. Oh, I can't. Tomorrow. Make it Friday or Saturday. Why not tomorrow? No tools. Take me two or three days to round them all up again. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Good night. Good night, all. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Jack Benny, followed by yours truly, Johnny Duller. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.